Welcome to Mercedes Second Chance Podcast, where we share real life stories about addiction, getting clean and being given a second chance. Thank you for coming to Mercedes Second Chance. Um, why don't you tell me who you are and what you do? Well, um, my name is Julie. Well, it's Julia, but they call me, you know, Julie, don't call me late for dinner. Um, and would you want to know? Just who you are. Who I am. I am Julia Mines. I am a mother, an aunt, a grandmother, um, a mother of two dogs. I'm a wife. Uh, yeah. Um, I wear a whole lot of different hats. You Sometimes do. I can't I'll always think of it. Um, my claim to fame, though, is being the matriarch of my family, the last one of my family, my immediate family still alive. Um, I'm also an executive director of a recovery club. So Yeah, that's big. And that's what I kind of want to talk about because that's how I know you. Okay. I used to come to meetings um, at the club, and I remember I was in treatment, and um, I would see you, and you looked mean. I was like, <laughs> you looked important and mean. Okay. Like, not mean, mean, but like no-nonsense type okay. of person. And um, and I was like, oh, my gosh, she's very intimidating. But you also gave like a warm spirit about yourself. You know, and one thing I noticed is you took care of your people, like your employees, um, the clients, um, down to the janitors. Like you took care of everybody, like family. And yeah. I was like, wow. And the um, the thing that amazed me, I didn't really know that um, you knew of who I was or anything. But when you told me to apply for that position as um, being on the board of directors for that company, I I was I was shocked. I never in my life thought that I would serve on the board of anything. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And to have you like look at me and kind of think enough of me uh, to say that with at the time, I had just two years clean. I'm coming up on my third year. Mm -hmm. You know, that was big. And you do invest in the youth. I see that, you know, as far as, not the youth, early people in recovery. Yes, absolutely. You know, and um, and that's a big deal because pe folks like you and um, the organization that I work for, they do take a chance on, you know, their people. Mm -hmm. And that's very important because, like I said, had it not been for you, encouraging me to apply for that position, I wouldn't have made it on a board of directors. If it was an organization that was not African-American or Native American, something like that, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have made it on. You know, I didn't have the credentials. I didn't have the qualifications. But the beauty of it is recovery and um, the connections you make in the program just in general is a, like fellowship and service. And I, you know, that's what stood out to me mm -hmm. about you. And you definitely like mentored me um, in your in-between busyness. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, I, I do want to hear your story. I want you to take it back and kind of tell me what brought you here and what makes you, you, Julie, the way you are and the woman you are today. Because it's very beautiful and very inspiring. Okay. Well, I was born and mostly raised in Altadena, California. Oh, okay. And so when my father died, at, I was eight years old. And he died of alcoholism, um, complications of alcoholism. At eight years old, and my dad was my world, right? Like, I was his little girl, you know, the last one in the family. So the morning that my mother came to the door, I knew my dad had been in the hospital. 
But the morning my mother came to the door, and I can just see it in her face, right? Like, your daddy's gone. You could see it in her face. You still remember. I was going to say, I can look at you, and you're almost there right now. I see it. I remember the look on her face. And uh, like my brothers and sisters had, had brothers and sisters, they had a different picture of my dad, right? Like the alcoholic and all that kind of stuff. Well, as the youngest, he used to take care of me. I would always be in the back of the car. They used to tell me about how dirty my face was because he feed me candy, you know, and all that kind of, you know, daddy's little girl, you know what I'm saying? And so when he died, um, it became a different world for me. Mm -hmm. Um, Like my mom, God rest her soul, she was always my mom, you know what I'm saying? Teach you how to be independent, how to you know do things in the world, but my mom was um, wasn't a touchy feely mom, you know. But you knew she loved you, you know right. what I'm saying. So, um, she she remarried because the man that she remarried was my dad's friend, and he t- and my dad asked him on his deathbed to take care of his wife and his children. Oh wow! Right. Um. So they remarried. My mom remarried to this man, but um. You know, there was times when my mom said, you know, he would say something negative about my dad and she would go off, right? Like, um, that was my husband. He's the father of all my children. children. And mm-hmm. if he was alive today. You wouldn't be here. You, you wouldn't be here. That's right, right. right. So don't talk about my husband, right? Yeah. Like, so growing up, um, I had that piece that um, he was a very negative man in our lives. Mm. Um you know, we have the dark skin, light skin thing, right? And he was dark skin, and he it seemed like he had an issue with all of us because we were light skinned. Right? Now, this is your stepfather? My stepfather. Okay. So he would say things, right? So What would he say? Um, It wouldn't be direct. You know, it was just, you know, them, them yellow kids of yours and, you know, uh, stuff like that, mm-hmm. you know. So growing up in Altadena, my, mom, my mother, she had allergies real bad living in Los Angeles area. Okay. And so in 1971, well, 1970, we visited Oregon twice. And then she decided she's moving here because the air was clearer here. You oh, know, yeah. that it, it, her allergies wouldn't be so bad from the smog. So we moved here. It was a culture shock. Because where I grew up in Altadena, there were people of all races up and down the streets that I lived on. There were Chinese, whites, mixed folks, black folks, you name it. They we lived on the street there. Everybody and we all got along. You know, some people talked to us. Some, you know, but it didn't matter. There was no, you know, none of that racial stuff that I could That's see as a little kid. Divide. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when I got here, we moved on in by over by Unthank Park, and and the kids would uh, say I was a white girl. Oh, because yep. my mother kept my hair, you know, and I was light skinned and. I was a white girl, and they, you know, who are you people? Where are you coming from? Right, I'm black. Right, <laughs> you and your know? mom's your mom's not white. No, my mom is Native American and black. So okay. Um. Then my mother bought when she finally purchased a home. She purchased purchased a home up on Forty Second and Fremont. Totally oh. a culture shock, right? We move uh-huh. up here with all those white folks, right? I'm going to Beaumont and Grant High School. And the neighbors across the street would call me nigger, like that nigger girl over there. Like, who are these people? 
(laughs) I was like, you know, really. um, So, and then what really broke. So wait, what did that do for you? Because I know sometimes like we'll say like, oh, they call me nigga. And then it's just so normal. Like we just breeze over that. But like for me, when somebody, the first time somebody said that to me and it was a white person, it crushed me. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It was absolutely crushing. It was like uh, we moved into this neighborhood and uh, story. This is me and my mother were at Safeway up there on 60th and Sandy or where, you know, Uh up there, Uh Fremont, Sandy. And they were having a really good sale. Right. And so the lines were long. And so we're standing in line and there's a a guy, a white guy standing in front. And he had one item in his hand and. So my mother said to him, you know, you could probably get through the line faster over on the short line or something. And he looked, he turned around. And so we're standing there and we're standing. So um, she said it to him again, you know, you probably get through faster. And he said, uh, he turned around and he said to my mother, um, then um, why are you up here in our neighborhood? You need to go to the Safeway down there on Ainsworth and MLK. Like, excuse me, excuse me go down there with the black people. And so I stepped up for my mother, right? Because how dare you? Right. How dare you, right? Um, and I told him, you know, my mother has earned the right to be go wherever she want to go. Mm-hmm. And if you disrespect my mama again, you're going to be laying on the floor <laughs> in this safe way. Right. And the, uh, another white lady stepped in and said, no, no, no. You know, but that was like, you don't get to disrespect my mother. Right. You know? So things like that, that would happen. Um, so growing up, up on 41st, um, I started smoking weed in high school. Well, I think I started before that, but I really got into it my freshman year in high school. And so I had a friend, and, you know, I hung out with the white kids because that's where I lived. And a friend's father had a boat in El Waco. And she would always invite friends to go out on the boat on the weekends and that oh. kind of thing. But she never invited me. So I said one time, how come you don't invite me? How come I can't go out on the boat? She said, well, my dad said you can't go because they talk about niggers on the boat. And I was just devastated, right? Like, culture shock, for real, for real. Like, so I, um, needless to say, that was not my friend anymore. Right. Because I, I understood then. And then I started hanging out with the black kids at Grant. And this got into weed. And, you know, my senior year, I snorted hair on, snorted some coke, you know, all that kind school. of stuff. Yeah, okay. in high school. I used to sell joints my freshman, I mean, my sophomore year. One of the teachers found my clutch purse. I had a whole bunch of joints rolled up and <laughs> flapping. The, the joints was all over the table, and I didn't see them. And he said, look. You know, thank God he was a black guy, and uh-huh. he understood what we was doing. You know, and it wasn't no big deal. But he said, Get, "What are you doing?" All right, right. So, but I did graduate from high school. Um, I made it through. I did a little bit of college, but then I got a boyfriend, and so I moved into my own place. And uh, life, he was a burglar, and so he went to prison in a sting or something. So here I am out in the world, very naive, very sheltered by myself. And I'm running with the in crowd now mm-hmm. learned how to, um, my senior year went down to California for spring break. And my sister-in-law's brother turned me on to crack cocaine first time. Right. 
uh, I didn't know what it was, didn't get high. At least I didn't feel like I was high, right? Never didn't touch it again until right after my graduation started hanging out with my ex-boyfriend's friend, and he was selling crack. And you knew what to do. And then I knew what to do then, right? And right. so um, I was working for Social Security Administration as a worker trainee, and I got a pretty good job because that could have led me anywhere in the federal government, right? Yeah. And um, the bottom line is crack took me away from my career. You know, you have been after, uh, this is the thing. I was working for Social Security during the day, going to school four hours after that at ITT, and then I would um, work um, graveyard at Fred Myers. So, you know, just doing my thing. <sighs> and then I needed crack to stay awake because oh. I was burning the candle at both ends, right? So right. how am I make this? And then finally just all, you know, like they say, the first thing, you put in front of something is the first thing you lose. Right. So when I put cocaine, I mean, my jobs in front of my my addiction, those were the first things that I lost. And I ended up stripping in a club, and my brother found me there, and next day they had me on a plane down to Los Angeles to my sister's because maybe she could do something <laughs> with her, right? Because right. she just off the hook. Right, right, right. Well, when I got to Los Angeles, guess the crack was there too. Right. You know, so um, you ever heard that song by, um, the what was the name of the group called? Um, the Speakeasy? I, w I went to work for the club that they talk about in that song. Chic or, well, I forget, oh, you know, yeah. going to the Speakeasy. That, okay. that club. So I was working in that club in Hollywood. And, oh, okay. And I ran into this guy, and he just kept, oh, you pretty. Right. He's a Los Angeles yeah, guy. Yeah. And, you know, I was very naive, so I got um, some of the men would take advantage of my naiveness, right? Right. So he wanted me to go with him out to his um, penthouse in Redondo Beach and come oh. out here and, you know, cook dinner for me and... Okay, so I did, and then the next morning when I woke up, there was all these girls in the apartment. Like, where the hell did they come from? Mm -hmm. Like, well, he explained what he was doing. You know, these are one of my women. Oh, he was grooming you. Grooming me. Grooming me overnight. Uh, overnight. overnight. Like, like, okay, so. And it was all fun and dandy at first, right? Like, right. okay, we going to Hollywood. We working all night. We doing this, you know. I turned my first trick and all that kind of stuff, and um, so how was it that easy for you to do that? Were you, was it the drugs and he kind of? It, it was the life that I never knew about, right? This is fun. Okay. This is fun, like not selling my body, but you know, being here and kicking it and getting high, uh, getting high, being included and be being included, yep. yeah, being part of all of this, right? Mm -hmm. But then the, the uh, his main woman didn't like me because I was light skinned, oh. and I was uh, that fat bitch, right? I was, you know, I was just healthy, but you know, that fat bitch, uh, you know, whatever she could do, mm -hmm. you know. And so I started going to jail and getting beat up by the police, and uh. then like uh, I don't think I want to do this anymore. But by then I've had um, been in jail a couple of times and had. Um, bailed out and so there was money that I owed right oh you got a debt right yeah I got a debt now uh -huh. so I can't go I can't right. go anywhere so if I want to go we're going to take you to jail and you can go to jail and then you can get out from there and do it you know 
well, who wants to go to jail? I don't want to go spend no time in jail. Right. Right. So, um, yeah, so I stayed. And um, she left because she didn't like me. And then there was a couple other girls because I became, I, I took her place mm. um, because I was smart. Mm-hmm. And I had become streetwise. And so there wasn't too much that could get over on me. I still had a lot of learning to do because right, I but don't it happen quickly? Yeah, it happens in quick. South Central. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So um, we lived in Redondo Beach, went to Hollywood every night. Um, but I got raped one time, you know, um, kidnapped, raped, mm-hmm. all of that. That goes along with the life. Yeah, um, no, I was kidnapped out there yeah. over on Figueroa in Manchester. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, well, I was off of um, Western and uh, Carlton Way. Okay, I know exactly where yeah. that is. Yeah, yes. the Time Motel. Mm-hmm. That was up there. So, um, yeah, I was kidnapped and raped and because I didn't want to talk about it once they did find me. I went to the hospital, did rape kids, but, you know, I'm out there working the streets. They ain't paying much attention to that. Right. Um, and when I went home, I didn't want to talk about it because I, I was traumatized. I got hit in the face because I didn't want to talk about what had been done to me, right? Like, and I didn't understand that. Like, I was just, anyway. No, I feel, and, and that is like, it, it stains you, you yes, know, because like, it's like you're going there for that, that a little bit of compassion, you know, and safety, and here they'll, you know, they'll kick you or they'll hit you, you when because, you already beat up. Yeah, beat, beat up, had a big old black eye and get back on the street because they figured out that the other men's women had set me up to get kidnapped because I was making money, hand over fist, mm-hmm. because I was that Mexican girl, that that's what the Mexicans thought, right, that Mexican girl, so they going to come to me. For the you know because they thought I speak Spanish and I don't know. yeah they thought I was Mexican yeah, and I so, got set up by yeah, some Mexican women yeah, well one she yeah. was one to- so they set me up and mm-hmm. I had to get back on the out on the street to show them that you know I wasn't afraid that what you did didn't you know even though I was afraid right so I rode that out and um, then we tra- traveled to Houston and I lived in Houston for five years my daughter was born in Houston. We've traveled across the United States, down into Florida, all up in Canada, and we ended up. I ended up living in Houston um, when my daughter, when I once I got pregnant. You got pregnant, okay. It and this had, is by that guy. Yeah, by him. Okay. Um, so we were together about five, six years until my drug addiction reared its ugly head because the trauma, the trauma, mm-hmm. not working on nothing, not doing nothing, you know. Um, trying to take my baby was born and he took my baby from me and put me on a plane and sent me back to portland yeah and so i when i came back to portland i came back with a vengeance all the street wise all that stuff Mm -hmm. i come with the vengeance you know stay with mom drugs hit real big found out where to get them all that kind of stuff and um yeah i was on the streets in portland off and on for a while, I mean, I got pregnant with my son. Um, I found um, a guy that just liked me, but he was he was on drugs, but he wasn't, you know, in the life. So oh. he let me stay with him, and I was oh. pregnant with my son. He pretty much claimed my son, his psychology. He knew he wasn't the biological father, but he claimed him, and, you know, that's his baby, you know, yeah. and it was. Um, he was a good guy. 
But I used him too, you know, right. when the drugs came. And so when I left him, um, then I got pregnant with, um, I went into recovery for the first time. How did that happen? Um, I was in jail. You, now you say something that's so funny to me. You said um, it was like a higher power stepped in um, that was greater than yourself in the form of jail or something like that. What do you say? Well, I I, I say that um, first th- for me, my my higher power is the creator, Aku, and the ancestors. And um, the bottom line is, had I not gone to jail, God knows where my kids would be and all that kind of stuff. So God stepped up. The creator stepped up. And when I ask for for help, it's not about the help that I want. Right, because you can't say what the yeah, help going to look, gonna look like. going to look just, like, right? right? So um, the creator stepped up and sent me to jail because I was done. I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. And uh, so I went to jail. BOA got me out. Um, my mom had taken my son, and I met this guy. He had pretty eyes, right? He wasn't all that cute, but he had pretty, pretty eyes, eyes, right? <laughs> so, okay, so this is the one because he got pretty eyes, right? Right, so, that's all it takes. And the whole time we got, the, I got this little apartment that no men can be in, and he's hiding in there day in and day out, you know, and coming and going visiting hours, but he's there all night, right? Oh, he's in the treatment center? No, not that it was like a transitional housing for women. Oh, that okay. men weren't well, not you know, supposed you to be in. And you couldn't have any overnight guests. But right. he's li- pretty much living there, right? Right. And uh, so I got pregnant with my daughter, um, was clean for about five years, moved out, got an apartment, got a job, all this kind of stuff. But lo and behold, he's still using the whole time. For the when five I, years? Yeah, and sneaking. But then I find out that he's using. So who's off and running again? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I was doing good. My mother bought me a BMW. You know, oh. I'm working a good job out in Gresham. Um, and then I get pregnant, and I find out he's using. So, okay, I'm going to sell dope, right? Since he's using, I'll sell him the dope, right? Girl, it wasn't two weeks before I was my <laughs> own best customer. You right. know, like, you know, right. people, places, and things. So, um yeah, and I began using again, and I was back out on the streets, and it didn't take long. I think my daughter was maybe 18 months, not even 18 months, when he took her to his mother's house. She became lactose intolerant. Her food was running straight through her, nothing but diarrhea, and they took her to the hospital, and they said she had failure to thrive, um, dehydrated and all this kind of stuff. So the police picked me up because they gave her my name, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm out on the streets. I'm thinking my baby's okay, but she's not. Um, and they picked me up and they uh, charged me with neglect. And when I went to court, they dropped the neglect but still gave me, you know, some kind of charge, but with release to treatment. Okay. So I went to Project Network Mm-hmm. Eight, six months inpatient, six months outpatient, and six months aftercare. This one was when Project Network was specifically for African-American women and children. Mm-hmm. And so I did that, and um, I stayed clean for a while until I made it almost to my 18 months, 
and I got a phone call. My parents had packed up and moved back to California um, to the heat out in um, Rancho Cucamonga, okay. <laughs> per se. And um, so my stepfather died August 13th of 1997 from leukemia. Wow. Okay, and gout and all that. Um, didn't care much about him, but, you know, that was my mother's husband. So, you know, yeah. um, I didn't go to the funeral or anything. Uh, but it was um, Monday morning at 6 o'clock. They called me and said he died. Okay. All right. You know, so, you know, I'm sorry, Mom. You know, you know, all that kind of stuff. So two weeks later, 13 days later, Monday morning, 6 o'clock in the morning, my sister calls me and says my mother passed away. So within 12 days, I had two major deaths. That, um, And I was still clean, but it was like, okay, go through the motions numb, getting the help that I need to get, my mother's, get to my mother's funeral. They wouldn't let me take, my kids were in DHS custody, but I had custody of my daughter, not my son, but they would let me take my son with me. They wouldn't let me take my daughter with me. So I had to leave her with somebody mm. to drive down to Rancho Cuca and Mama, bury my mother, and then get back home. And I did that. So all that process, I was numb till mm -hmm. I got back here. And I'm working graveyard shift at Emanuel Hospital as an admitter. And uh, one night, one weekend, I go get the pizza and the movies, you know, get my son where he's out of the group home he's in. We're going to enjoy the weekend. And the boyfriend says he's got to go do something. So I said, don't go do nothing stupid. So I'm just sat inside, right? Mm -hmm. So the bottom line is he went and got some crack. He wanted to take a bath. I went upstairs. Everything was okay. Um, says something said, go back upstairs. And he was high. And so I lifted up the towel, and there's a crack in the pipe, right? Oh, no. And I put the crack on the pipe, and I said, well, no, what would you do if I hit this? He said, he just stood there looking, and I hit it, and he said, let's go get a 20. And it was off and running. Everything I had worked for, you know, was, um, it was there. It was there, and the opportunity to stay clean had slipped through my hands once again. So the kind of dopey I am, by all means necessary, all out, you know, because I came back to Portland with the vengeance, of serious vengeance, like, you know, this world owes me something. Mm -hmm. And so when I'm off and running, lost my job, all of that, right, lost my housing, and the next thing I know, out of a four-month run, everything was gone, and I went to jail. The police, the my PO had finally put a, a, um, a warrant out for me mm -hmm. that she hadn't put out before, but finally this warrant was out, and uh, so I went to jail. Okay, so I'm going to do a 30-day stint, you know, do my um, sanction. So on my 28th day, a detective come in, comes in and tells me that I have two secret indictments, that I've been selling crack a thousand feet from a school. Um, and I was devastated. What do you mean? There ain't no school around. Well, do you know that around the corner there's a school called McCoy Academy? And it made it seem like I was selling crack to kids, right? Like, but right. that, you know, but it was a thousand feet from a school. So with that, um, I stayed in jail. And I went to prison. The back door at OWCC slammed 
behind me, August 27th, 1998. And in prison, never been there before, come from a pretty middle-class family, right? Like, how in the hell did I get Get here? here? Right. Like, oh, my God. And how how do you know that date? August 20, what was it? August 27, 1998. Okay. How do you know that date? How I know that date is I went into jail March 4th, 1998. My clean date is 3-5-98. I was sentenced August 24th, 1998 to 22 months in prison running on two charges, but they ran them consecutive. They ran together. And I rode that bus to OWCC August 27th, just remembering the last run. Because I'm real clear, if I forget the last run, I haven't had the last one yet. Mm-hmm. So that was my last run. Right. And um, I was arrested March 4th of 98. And I remember those dates because my life changed. Changed. My life changed. Moment. Those were ch- turning points in my life. Right. But prison, you say, is your saving grace. Why? Absolutely. Do you, why do you say that? Because I'd never been t- treated so horribly before in my life. Even when I was out there on the streets, like here I am, I'm in jail. You can't get a rubber band. They give you a cup of baking soda with a one of those real cheap toothbrushes to brush your teeth. A little comb. This big that rips your hair out by the roots right this is and you're not supposed to have anything for 30 days because you can't get a a a bank account with the um in the prison system for 30 days Mm -hmm. so i was walking down the hall i bear i borrowed a little rubber band from somebody put my hair in a ponytail in the back the guard called me come here yeah where'd you get that rubber band from well if you don't take it out right now i'm sending you to ag seg What's that? Administrative segregation for 30 days because I had a rubber band in my hair. I was like, this is devastating. Like, you can't brush your teeth, or you can with baking soda. And you brush your teeth with baking soda. God. Um, You can't have a rubber band. Your hair's falling out because the comb is tearing your hair out, right? Like, you couldn't have anything. And if you got caught with it, they were ready to send you to administrative segregation. And that's like solitary confinement. Yeah, solitary mm-hmm. for a rubber band. Like, rubber band. okay, so this is devastating. Like, how in the hell did I get here? Right. Just how did I get here? And so I did my thing. You know, um, I went. I signed up for boot camp, went up there to cut all my hair off, inch on the side, two, two inches on the top. So now I'm running around looking like a boy. <laughs> right they put me out of boot camp because they said um i was gang related and gang affiliated like uh, are you serious but right. who because i wrote a letter and i said you know i forget what i said but so they kicked me out of boot camp mm-hmm. i ended up at crci and um i was going crazy like this is not a place i ever want to be again so and i had a mouth on me so i would you know, tell people slick stuff and guards and everything else, right? And mm-hmm. so they gave me some queen baby packet. I was in outpatient treatment there, and they put me on segregation, the um, loss of privileges. So I had to sit on my bunk all day except for go to work, and I had to wear a green shirt that not, that identified you 
as Where? loss of privileges, right? Right. So I'm sitting up there. I got two kids in DHS custody, and I got this picture. I'm getting a, a visit once a month with my son, and they won't bring my baby, my daughter, my baby daughter to see me at all. And I get the picture of them two together, just proofs, right? Where mm-hmm. somebody's gotten them together. And gotten them pictures, together, right. And took pictures. And I thought I lost it. Matter of fact, I know I lost it, right? Um, people were out there taking pictures of my babies, and I didn't have anything to do with it. Um, right. We're worth were, it. Right. Who was taking helpless, care of them? Helpless. The whole bit. Right. And so I ended up going, riding a kite. I think that's when the creator stepped in. Something's got to be different. Right. I was going to say, because this is, you know, a lot has happened in this short amount of time. And you're very young. Yes. You know, and and I'm thinking about you and I hear about your kids and your relationship now. And I'm just thinking, like, how did that happen? Like, what were those turning points or those events that you know, you turned it around and you took advantage of the second chance you were yes. given. What was yes. your second chance? My second thought? chance was seeing those pictures, sitting up there in that green shirt, getting down, riding a kite. Because see, in prison, if you're not a special factor 25, meaning that you're mandated to inpatient treatment, mm-hmm. you pro- pretty much don't get to go, right? Even if you do want to change your life around. So I wrote this kite. There's this man that was head of it called Kevin Harmon. I remember his name. I wrote this kite. I don't know what I wrote, but I went to work the next morning in the kitchen, and when I got out, he came to see me, right? And um, he asked me, I'll never forget this, so what's different? Why do you want to go to inpatient treatment? I said, because I don't know. I'm losing my mind. I think I'm losing my mind here something's and I cried something's got to change mm-hmm. something has have has to change and not being a special factor 25 I didn't think I'd ever I, they would allow, allow me mm-hmm. the next day after I came out of the kitchen they told me roll up to turning point oh. and that's inpatient treatment you in get the to prison. go right. yes without any having to jump through any hoops, just go to treatment. So I went down there and I almost got kicked out behind a jail pen. I don't remember picking it up. You know how you pick up a pen and just keep going. You know, I don't remember picking it up, but they said they almost kicked me out, but they didn't. Mm -hmm. And um, I rolled out of CRCI August 29th, 1999 with almost two years clean and sober. And you stay clean this whole time. And I've been clean ever since. So you know what I see? Like, you were really tired, and you were looking for another chance. That, you know, and knowing how strong you are and how dedicated you are to not only helping our community in recovery, but anybody who comes to you and needs you, I see you telling God, thank you. Absolutely. Every day still. You got what? Is it 23 years? 24 years. 24 years clean. You're still saying thank you every day because that is kind of an, a, a living amends, right? Yeah. You know, when you're living with honor and you're Native American, that's really yeah. important is to keep that legacy going. Absolutely. And I definitely see that with you. Um, I could listen to your story all day, okay. <laughs> honestly. Um, I do want to ask you, though, what is it that you feel 
is like your purpose here and um, how are you fulfilling it? I believe that I've gone through college. I've got two master's degrees. I have um, a master's level CADC. I am a CRM two um, certified recovery mentor two. I'm a qualified mental health professional. And I think somebody told me 20 years ago, I said I had four years clean. They said, well, you're the future. Because I, I was like, how can I do I'm only four years clean. Well, you're the future. Right. That's why you're here. I never saw that, but I see it now, and I remember that lady telling me this because I am—I was the future then. Right. And so now that that has come to pass, the creator, Ku, and ancestors have allowed me to be the future. I have to look back and say, you're the future. Right. Somebody's got to give you that, right? They've got to reach back and pull people forward, the people that won't probably never have an opportunity, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. If, because someone won't reach out and pull them forward. Well, I'm that person to say, you're the future. Come on, let's do this. Right. You know, and I've reached back and pulled several people forward. And it's not to say that I'm all that. No, It's to say that the future is here. My time is my time. And then you'll have a time. Right. Just like our kids have a time and our families, right? Mm-hmm. So my time is to reach back to the folks that are in recovery because remember I said I'm the last sibling in my family. Mm-hmm. All of my siblings have died from addiction in one form or another. Mm-hmm. Well, I get to choose my family now, right? right? Like, and I, for you, for instance, I watched you, even though you say I look mean or whatever, <laughs> and I never. I don't approach people and I don't all that, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I don't have a lot of sponsees because when they go out, I hurt too. So I can't stand that. Right. Like, you know, but I watch people Mm -hmm. and I may never say nothing until I think it's time. So I was thinking in my office one day, we need some young folks on this board. Mm -hmm. Like we got enough people, you know, those that are, you know, been in recovery for, I need some young folks to understand where Miracles is and make a future for it because it's been around 27 years plus 27 years. So who's going to keep it around another 30 years? Right. You know what I'm saying? So I need the young folks that are in the rooms that believe in miracles, that miracles do happen at miracles. At miracles. To come around and be on the board, work here, have a future, um, look at where we can go. Because I got a vision, and maybe one day your vision will be greater than mine. Mm-hmm. Right? So I'm going to take it to the level that I can take it to. And then pass the baton. And then pass the baton right. to the next one, to take it to the next level. Right. I get that. Yeah. And I feel like that happened, too, like with your mom. When you say, when you told the story, your mom was basically saying, like, I've carried you as far as I can carry you. But you know what to do. And you did know what to do. All her teachings, they were with you. Absolutely. And when you explained your mom, you described her, I thought, oh, my God, she is her mom. (laughs) You are. The way you describe her is like, is you, you know. And people say that about me, and I don't see it. Well, because she lives on here. And I had to, when I was in prison, I had to do the work, right? Like, I was angry. My mom had left me. Nobody teaches you how to grieve. Right. Right. My mom didn't sit me down. Okay. So when 
your dad died, this is what you need to do. Mm -hmm. You know, there's no book on having the grieving process, right? So when I wrote my goodbye letter to my mom, it was a rest in peace letter, rest in love. And do that. I cried so hard I couldn't breathe. Right. Like, it was so devastating, but that's what I needed to do in order to let her in and then live here and teach me how to live. Because my mom was an orphan, but a very strong woman, right? Like, and she had six kids, and I'm the last one. How dare I tarnish her name? Because Sylvia was a bad woman. And I'm talking about she was strong, bad, and she allowed me to live. She allowed me to live. And how dare I not allow her to live on in my heart? Because that was my mama, right? Like the woman I loved and I was never I've never been too scared of anybody in my life but I was scared of that woman because she was and none about what she do is how she said things Mm -hmm. like so smooth and so quietly and meant every word and and didn't miss a beat and make you feel this big right Right? like so yeah yeah that was my mama thank you for sharing that you're welcome that was healing for me Thank you. If you um, could give um, people out there advice, just one piece of advice that you know could carry them and will help them, what what would that be? I think the biggest thing is people have to remember that life is a journey, not a destination. It's a journey, and you got to walk your journey. You got to stay on this journey. And you, there'll be ruts, there'll be mountains to climb, there'll be valleys to walk through. But the bottom line is, it's a journey. And you got to keep putting one foot in front of the other and keep it pushing. You can't stop, because when you stop, you're giving up. Don't give up. Life is a journey, not a destination. And we, it'll always come to an end eventually. Mm-hmm. But I'm not looking for the destination. I'm enjoying the journey, living one day at a time. Right. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. I appreciate you. I feel like I know you. I want to say I love you because I'm like, (laughs) I feel like I know you on a whole nother level. And I identify so much. And I know that it was definitely creator that sent you here that brought us together. And I'm just anything I can do to help people hear your story because it needs to be heard. And, you know, you're mother's legacy is no longer mystery or no. not history because you're here yeah because i'm know? here today. you're here yeah you tell sylvia's story so and i'm thank you. you know yeah i'm raising kids that i never wrote you know i didn't raise my own but i'm raising a nephew i'm raising a grandson mm-hmm. you know i want a girl but you know i don't want no more kids <laughs> right <laughs> but i'm doing the best that i can with the information that i'm working with yeah all right okay. well thank you you're welcome baby. appreciate it thank you for having me here Thanks for listening. Please like, share, subscribe, and visit our website at mercedessecondchance.com.